I have listened to the show a few times. I noticed that you're not too strict about sticking to the exact topic at hand. Yeah, I used to have yeah. a bullhorn that would flag you if you went off topic, but... <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 124 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, Paul Cantrell. Hello. Did I say that right? Cantrell. Cantrell. Close enough. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I uh, am an indie developer doing most of my work with really outstanding folks at Bust Out Solutions. And I also teach part-time at McAllister College and do a bunch of musical things, which Google can tell you about if you're interested. Google, That's tell me about Paul's music. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that different? Okay, sorry. So we brought you on today to talk about Siesta. Do you want to kind of give us a brief introduction to that? Sure. On several different bust-out projects, I'd uh, been using a bit of helper code that I found myself just copying forward between projects, which let me know that it was uh, time to make it a library. And I suggested to Jeff, who runs bust-out, that uh, we should really open source it. And community-minded sort of person, he uh, actually set aside a little funding for me to take the time and do that. So... This is code that I wrote out of necessity on a few different iOS projects. And I was just using bare NSURL session sort of networking. It was the stuff that I found I needed just using the native APIs. And it was an abstraction that paid off in surprising ways beyond the context in which I initially needed. It takes somewhat different approach from other REST or networking libraries in that its core abstraction that it focuses on is not individual requests, but individual resources. So I'm calling it a resource-centric networking framework as opposed to the more familiar request-centric. What I mean by that is that if you use an SURL session or Alamo Fire or EFN Networking or uh, ResKit or any of the other familiar libraries, all of them start with a request. You say, let's kick off a networking operation and let me know when it's done and then I'll figure out what to do with it. And there are a lot of different flavors of that, but they all, when you really think about what they're doing, they all boil down to basically being asynchronous procedure calls, remote procedure calls. It's all just glorified RPC. We're treating the server as something that we send a request to and a response is tied to a request. And so now you're probably thinking, well, yes, that's HTTP. How else would it possibly work? So the problem that drove me to something different was actually, uh, it was a tiny little problem that first helped me with this insight, but sometimes it's the small projects that lead to the big insights. I had an app where there was just one piece of information from one request that 
mostly corresponded to one screen in the app, but it also affected what things show up in the main menu and little bits of it showed up in an entirely separate view controller somewhere else. And I thought, you know, this is stupid. I'm, I'd be stashing this information somewhere. And I, once again, will be writing the bit of glue code that I think we all find ourselves writing on just about every networked project where we say, oh, I need to get my requests a little bit decoupled from my view controllers. I'll make some sort of singleton or request manager or model container of some kind that just coordinates all these requests and hangs on to the results between screens. And I thought, you know, this would not be that hard to generalize. So what I did instead was just made a simple little cache that saves the parsed responses to HTTP requests keyed off of the URL. And I can just ask for data by URL. And if it exists, great, I get it back. Easily done. I then quickly realized, though, and this is this is where things get interesting, that all this time we spend, we focus on caching just the actual data that comes from a request. And that's not really enough information to make a good user interface. I want to know, what's the latest data? Was there an error? And I need rich error information, not just absent or something like that. And I also want to know, is it loading? I want to show, at the very least, some kind of little spinner or something. And those pieces of information are tightly coupled. They change together. The loading indicator shows up, and then it disappears, and either an error message or new data takes its place. And it was that moment when I said, wait a minute, okay, there's this thing, there's a restful resource. There's a bunch of information about it, which loosely falls into the categories of requests and progress, data that I have for it, and error information about it. If I group that together, then all sorts of code instantly becomes much easier to write and problems that I thought were sort of one-off things quickly fall away. And when I saw that happening, that's that's when I started copying it between projects and realized that, yeah, this this should be an open source project. So that's why I'm bringing it out to the world. And it's now very new. It's been public for weeks, really. But the code is old. Uh, internally, this is sort of a, in Paul Cantrell's life, in Bust Out's life, this is sort of a 2.1 release. But I'm not calling it 1.0 yet. I want other people to just kick the tires, use it with their approaches to writing apps, and hear from other people about um, what roadblocks they hit, what bugs they hit, if any, and get some more people giving more perspectives on it before I call it a public 1.0. That's the project in a nutshell. So did the name Siesta come from REST? Of course. And I quickly discovered that there are several other REST frameworks in other languages that do completely unrelated things that are also called Siesta. But I don't know, live with it. I was hoping considered hammock, but there were several frameworks that were too close to that. I was just hoping that we would get a nap today when I looked at the schedule. But Oh, wouldn't that be nice? I have a one-year-old, so tell me about it. (laughs) So halfway through the show, we just be quiet for about 10 minutes. That's right. And let mm. our, our listeners be quiet, too. Dear listener, close your eyes. And if anybody bothers you about napping at work, you just say, no, I'm learning very important information about, about iOS. That's right. Please don't bother. So is this a more specialized tool, then, than other HTTP libraries? I'd say it is. <clears throat> it's certainly not a general-purpose networking library. It does cover what I think is the bulk of common cases when you're consuming a RESTful API. And by RESTful, I mean that it organizes itself in terms of 
resources that have URIs that have identifiers. Um, so I wouldn't try to make this work with, say, a, a SOAP API. I haven't helped you if you're using one, but I'm, <laughs> it's, it's going to be heaven because I won't help you with that. XML is a four-letter word. Yeah, yeah, well, and XML is not the worst of SOAP. That's true. It's focused very narrowly on the problem of I have resources, I want to load them and update them, and I want those actions to be decoupled from the life cycles of UI elements or different parts of the app. I just want this body of information that I get from the API to be available when I need it. I have to say, though, that I have built plenty of REST APIs. Uh, most of the work I do is web. I'm starting to get into more of the arena of basically, well, you can get the full details of what I'm working on now if you go listen to the Entreprogrammers podcast or the episode of the Freelancer Show that comes out next week. But basically, I'm working on things like set-top boxes and, and Apple TVs and stuff. But I've built plenty of REST endpoints. I'm sure I'm going to be doing plenty more of that as part of this work. But so many people define REST so differently. And not all of them really, I mean, they kind of organize themselves that way, but they almost, rather than having a resource that you that you kind of post to or, you know, use different HTTP methods to hit them in different ways in order to interact with them in different ways, or, you know, I've seen it where you have different endpoints to actually do the interactions in different ways. So you have an edit endpoint and an update endpoint and, a, uh, you know, a create endpoint. So all of those will work with Siesta. To some extent. And it's a good point that people mean different things by REST. I mean different things by REST than, uh, what's his name, the, the REST author Ray Fielding, you know, has this very persnickety notion of what REST involves. And it's another tangent, but I personally, I think that Hadeus is just unmitigated pattern wankery. I don't think that's a particularly <laughs> useful construct for most APIs in terms of how they're used. So, okay, what do I mean when I say REST? What it really comes down to is that there are endpoints for which get is a special operation in that get is read-only, mm -hmm. and the results of a get I would like to keep around so that I can use them to keep populating user interface or doing things. So if get has a special caching status, then Siesta can work with it. And I'd say it works most elegantly if endpoints tend to be nouns and not verbs, but that's not a strict requirement. So one other thing that I've seen is I've seen people kind of write write libraries around REST or some, you know, some definition of REST. It sounds like your definition of REST is a little bit more restrictive maybe than Ray Fielding's, but... I'd say it's much less restrictive. Okay. His is very, very specific. I haven't read the paper, so I'm only making assumptions. Nobody has. <laughs> I know some I've, people I've who have, and then they say, but we're doing complaining this. Complaining about people not reading the paper online, and I think, yeah. yep, that's me. But, yeah, most people haven't actually read the paper or read any articles from anyone who's actually read the paper, or like three degrees from actual Fielding's thesis. Right, but the way that you described it where Git is a special operation, it's read-only, you know, access-only, you know, and then maybe post or put or patch or delete, you know, do different other things to the same resource. I've seen people take that approach, and then they kind of write almost an ORM layer over the top. And so it takes mm -hmm. the information it gets back, it serializes it into an object, it makes some assumptions about the way all that stuff works, and then when you have to update it, then it does a put or a patch, depending on which is appropriate. Right. And Siesta's 
more flexible than the sort of thing you're describing. Okay. Uh, what, what you just said sounds, for example, a bit like RestKit. Does that seem fair? I haven't used RestKit. I'll have to well, look at that. I haven't a lot. I think that RestKit maybe tries to solve too many problems at once, and that's something I'm trying not to do with Siesta. So Siesta doesn't make any particular presumptions about the relationship between data that's uh, in a get and data that's in a put or a post. It doesn't make any assumptions about the relationships between endpoints, and it also does not, emphatically does not, try to hide HTTP or do any kind of model mapping. That's up to you. You have your approach. Just go with it. Siesta has conveniences for common types, JSON and text and images, and that's as far as it goes. Mm -hmm. What it does make a special assumption about is it, well, it distinguishes between requesting and loading. Request means I send an HTTP request and I get a response. It's that RPC model I was talking about. Load is an abstraction over that that says I make a request, it's usually a get, and I hang on to the results of that request in a local observable cache. And the key really is that the cache is observable. So the, the shift when you go from request-centric to resource-centric way of thinking about things is that UI or logic that depends on a particular endpoint stops observing individual requests and starts observing the resource. And when you start observing the resource, there will probably be nothing there. The resource says, hello, I have no data, I'm empty. You can then say to the resource, please load yourself if necessary. That's an inexpensive call. There's some configurable throttling. So you can just do that all the time. On view will appear in a timer 50 times a second. It doesn't matter. And if new data ever appears for any reason, you get notified about it. And this sounds, as I describe it in the abstract, it sounds so innocent. Uh, maybe a concrete example of how it simplifies things would help make it clear how beneficial it can be. Consider the case where you have a view that shows some resource and some other resource that's dependent on the first one. So, for example, a user and all of their posts. So to populate that view, I first have to request the user, and then I have to request posts for that user. And let's say furthermore that the second resource, the posts, Let's say that that's an endpoint that I need the results of the first endpoint to find. That's a fairly common thing. Like, for example, I might search a user by name and I need their ID before I can get posts for that ID. Is that following so far? Mm -hmm. So think about how you write that code. You write a request for the user by name. Then when you get a response, you kick off a second request for the associated posts. And when that response comes, you display them, which looks beautiful and works beautifully in the happy path. And as soon as you start having to deal with errors somewhere along the way, recovery, retries, or especially anything timing related, say like the user initiating a second search while the results of the first one are coming back, then all of a sudden you're just in this world of, of different possible corners, bugs that seem stupid when you find them, but you never thought of. Why is this? Because this UI can be in so many states. I would just enumerate them. No data for either yet. I have data for user. I have data for new user and old user's posts. I have data for user and error for old user's posts. I have error for the new user, and I still have data for the old posts. And what do you do in every one of these? So what happens when you switch to observing a resource 
is that instead of having individual requests and responses to them triggering other things, that's where the problem is. It's these, these asynchronous callbacks. You don't know when a response is going to come back in. And when it does, you have to figure out the proper delta between the response you just got based on the response you got, the proper delta between the current state and the new state. Having something that just tracks the state of the universe and then you write your code to sort of update based on the latest good information, um, things become much simpler. I can write one little bit of code that says, say I have, I have two variables in my view controller. One is current user resource and one is current user's post resource. I can have a bit of code that's just update everything copy fields out of the user, populate a table view out of the posts. And in most cases, completely repopulating a UI is not even that expensive. I, usually I can just be stupid about it. Just if anything changed, copy all the information in. I then, if the user of the app initiates a new search, search for, say, a new user by name, I just update both resources. I say, okay, now I'm no longer interested in the previous user and the previous posts I'm interested in, this new user and their new posts. And at that point, if a response comes in that's out of date, that's for the old user's posts, I'll never even receive it. I'm not observing that thing anymore. I've defined the set of information that I'm interested in, and I don't have to worry about asynchronous callbacks coming in that I need to uh, ignore because the UI has moved on. It is a style of programming that it feels almost like reactive programming, but without the tremendous overhead of having to move your whole app to that model. I think it's a very interesting model. There's a lot of promise there. Going reactive is a big change. Going siesta is a pretty incremental change. But you get some of the benefit in that instead of worrying about these little deltas that arrive asynchronously, that is, responses to requests, Instead of worrying about little asynchronous deltas, you worry about what is the current state of the world and how do I show that? And there's just this sort of set of always true mappings that are unidirectional from current state to current UI. Okay, so if I'm trying to you know, load a search from a particular user and the user changes its mind for switching to a different user, am I able to do both or is this, are we locking in one user for that resource? Each resource corresponds to a URL. So what you would do is switch the resource that you're observing. There's user A and there's user B. I start out pointing my UI at user A. User B comes in. Now I'm observing user B instead. The usual pattern for this with Siesta and Swift makes this so nice. The usual pattern for this is to have a will set and a did set. Will set stops observing and did set starts observing. And Siesta works such that your observer callback gets pinged as soon as you start observing a new thing. So when I say start observing this new user instead, if I already have data for them, they just suddenly appear. If I have to initiate a request, well, I'll get that updated data whenever it arrives. But there's a separate resource for each user, and I just point myself at a different one to observe it. Does okay. that clarify? Yeah, so you have... Two users, they're going to have different URLs, generally different by their ID. So you'll have two different resources you could respond to, but you just pass in the URL, and that's how you identify it. That's the user? Mm-hmm. Okay. And URL does include query string. So this is where the, the restful presumption sneaks in, which is simply that slash users slash one, two, three, 
represents a unique thing. I think uh, level zero of the fielding's rest is pretty URLs. Actually, yep. no, that's not right. That's not right at all. Um, right. Yeah, <laughs> query <laughs> strings are definitely value for creating a unique URL. But go ahead. Sorry. That's about where Siesta stops, actually. There is this assumption that you don't have one, say, slash access point URL that you post all different kinds of commands to. At that point, you're going to have a hard time making Siesta look like that. But I don't think that most APIs are that obnoxious. Not, not now, maybe 20 years ago. It's rare that I encounter one that bad today. Okay, so if you're encountering you know, a developer who loves his RustKit or AF networking or you know, playing an NSURL session, what's your elevator pitch for why to do Siesta? Well, my first response is, for heaven's sake, if it works, stick with it. <laughs> I'm not making my living by selling this. And if you have an approach you like, if it works, it's right. What can I say? If you have doubts about your current approach, well, here's maybe what the problems you might not realize that you're having look like. Maybe you find yourself always writing a little glue layer that does some kind of caching of lots of responses that isn't just the NSURL cache, but holding on to lots of model objects and you find yourself encountering bugs related to that thing being out of sync. Or maybe you find yourself encountering bugs related to callbacks coming in at the wrong time or in the wrong order. Maybe you find yourself writing a lot of code to deal cleanly with errors. One of the benefits of Siesta is that it makes all errors look the same. So if the request was malformed, or there was a transport error, or the server returned an error code, or there was a parsing problem, those all come back in one place and look like one kind of thing with details available if you need them. An example of not realizing that you have the problem is on the, the Siesta README. If you take a look, I, uh, I highlight AF Networking's remote image loading <clears throat> extension. Are, are you familiar with that? Yes. And it lets you basically attach a URL to a UI image view. And the image view will load the image at that URL and display it when it's available. It takes an extraordinary amount of code to do this well. It's easy to do poorly. I could initiate a request every time the URL is set, but that has obvious drawbacks, uh, redundant requests, right? If I'm scrolling through a table view and 100 images flash by, I'll trigger 100 network requests. It's, it's terrible. So there's a bunch of logic, if you read that extension in AF networking, there's a bunch of logic there that caches parsed images and flushes them if some of them, if they're using too much memory, if there's a low memory event, and cancels the ones that move out of view and initiates requests only if one isn't already locally cached. And that whole massive, it's like, I don't know, it's several hundred lines of code, and it's good code, but it's just large. It takes like a dozen lines in Siesta. It's just easy because the caching's already there. You can just say, oh, there's a URL of an image. Just load that if you need to and give it to me whenever it changes. And it's quite a striking difference, especially because Siesta wasn't even particularly designed with that in mind. It was designed for working with APIs, not uh, static resources. But all of this code that AF Networking's authors found it necessary to write just becomes immaterial. In fact, the Siesta version is, is even a little bit more robust because the caching behind it is more robust. So that's the closest thing I have to an elevator pitch, I guess, is uh, you may be solving the problem, same problems over and over without even realizing it. Take a look. Take a look at the before and after in that comparison and see if it rings any bells in your code. Most apps that you write are going to have 
you know, some view control that it has to get some data, some resource, and other parts of the app depend on that. And you listed off a number of approaches earlier on how to deal with that. You've got some you know, connection manager and you store it somehow, you cache it, and you end up doing this. And most apps have their own way of doing it. And this is more of a, a general approach that you can use for a large subset of apps. Mm-hmm. To say, I've got this resource, okay, cache it. Someone else can just use Siesta and load up the resource if it's there. Yep, and get notifications when it changes. So one of the things that would seem scary to roll into your own app if you're doing this by hand, but becomes uh, basically for free with Siesta, is if one view controller causes a request to happen and another view controller later appears that also happens to need that same data, it can piggyback on the request that already happened. So say I go to my user profile page and there's get slash users. And then while that's happening on a slightly slow network connection, the user goes back to the home page and jumps to their posts timeline, which also happens to show the current user's avatar and username. Well, if that get users request is still happening, then the new view can just say, yes, I'm also interested in the result of that whenever it comes back. If the result has already come back, that second view doesn't need to initiate a new request. So there's this sensibly paced set of requests coming and going that is now all of a sudden decoupled from the life cycle of all of the UI elements that might have triggered those requests or be interested in their, res- in, in their results. And that decoupling is where the benefit happens. Yeah, I can see that. You know, you have two view controls that could request a user object. You know, you have two separate things of like your user client where if network, you don't really know that you've called it and you're waiting for something to get back. It's all done asynchronously. So making the two requests and managing them. And that's, that's kind of a hassle. So Siesta handles that. So you're dealing with the resource, a user. Does it have it? Load it. If it doesn't have it, okay, let me know when it comes in. And Siesta handles the, the glue, which otherwise you'd have to manage on your own. So yeah. I, I can see that's, that's useful. A common approach that I've seen for this is that you have some kind of, like you said, a user state or user manager singleton or shared object. And it holds both a reference to the current user and a method that is like, you know, refresh user or load user. And it tries to do all of this itself. It tries to say, if there's already a request in progress, don't start another one. And then people just use, say, KVO to observe the user property of this user manager. And the thing about this problem is that it seems really easy to solve in the abstract every single time we start an app. And every single time, it just grows and grows. It becomes this little tangled mess of buggy code. It seems easy because the happy path is so easy. If everything happens in the expected order and doesn't fail. and yeah, My simulator on Wi-Fi, my code runs great. Yeah, exactly. If I do the expected operations and they all complete immediately and everything works... No problem. It's easy code to write. As soon as you have to deal with unexpected state changes or dealing gracefully with uh, transitions in and out of there was an error, okay, there isn't an error anymore. As soon as you start dealing with all of that, it just becomes a tremendous headache. So Siesta's goal is just to peel off that one problem. And it tries very hard to stay out of the way of the rest of your app. Siesta doesn't have its own networking implementation. It uses NSURL session by default, but you can just inject the actual interface between Siesta and low-level networking is pretty small. And Siesta also does not try to figure out, well, how to do JSON to model mapping. It, It just stays a mile away from that problem because it's 
complicated and there are a lot of different ways of doing it. So Siesta tries to just focus on this one layer of caching and coordinating when requests happens and how results are propagated and stays out of the way of the rest. So how do you tell Siesta to convert the JSON and get back from the server into a user? How does that happen? There's a few ways. You just add water. One, yeah, well... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> magic, help, but... magic model water. <laughs> model water. That's rest kits. Yes, yes. Which has it, both its advantages and complexities. And, uh, you know, I make this sound like it's a big deal. Siesta's small. It's actually less code than Alamo Fire last time I checked by like a few dozen lines. And, and it's like five or six times smaller than ResKit. It's, it's not a big thing. But so how do you deal with models? The first way is that you just do it yourself. You cache parsed JSON. And if your models are little lightweight things that are cheap to create, I just create them on the fly. Whenever you update your UI, grab the JSON, make your little lightweight model, and update everything. That's one approach. A second approach so do you is... The, are you getting yeah. the JSON from Siesta? Yes. Okay, so you can just say, Siesta, give me the JSON, I'll map it, and let's exactly. go. Exactly. Okay. But you have some other options. Another option is just use the JSON, which I actually think is an underrated approach. It's interesting. So I do... I do a lot of iOS work. I also do a lot of Rails work and uh, rub shoulders with a lot of JavaScript work. And if anything, I'd say that iOS developers reflexively model everything a little too eagerly, whereas in the JavaScript culture, people uh, think they're using models and aren't. They're still just empty you know, data returned straight from the server. But there's not one size that fits all. In many apps, if an app is mostly read-only, small, doesn't have a lot of client-side logic, and basically needs to copy a bunch of uh, strings and formatted dates from a JSON object into the UI, I'm a fan of at least considering just passing that dictionary around. I'm not saying that's always a good idea, but certainly there are apps where it's so low impact to do that and take so little code that I think it's better than trying to build up a whole model layer. So that's approach number two which is a tangent, but I just say, consider that in your app. Maybe it's okay to pass dictionaries around. Now, okay, as soon as you have logic validation, a large number of developers, uh, as soon as keys getting out of sync becomes a concern, then yeah, maybe make a model object. Uh, but just make sure that you're actually solving a problem when you add a model layer to your app. The third approach is that Siesta has a configurable transformer pipeline, which is basically a series of transformations that can be applied to all responses or two responses matching a certain URL pattern. And what that would let you do is say, this URL, when you get it, yes, run it through the standard transformers. If it's JSON, parse it as JSON. And then as a last step, run it through this little transformation that turns it into one of my model objects. And that takes a little more configuration at that point, using CS to become slightly more heavyweight. You have to actually declare the mappings between URL patterns and models. But at that point, when Siesta says, hey, here's some new data, what you get back is a model object. Yeah, the thing that it occurs to me, this reminds me of a library in Ruby called Faraday. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm familiar with Faraday. So, you know, it's not, Faraday isn't specifically designed for REST. I mean, it is legitimately just an HTTP request library and you can make any kind of request you want but yeah you have these transformation libraries they are middleware 
that essentially sits on top of it, and you can stack as much of it as you need on there to transform the responses or the requests to uh, kind of be formed into whatever you need them to be. That's exactly right. And the Transformer pipeline in Siesta looks a lot like the middleware in Faraday. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's also, I should say, it's one of the areas that is still in active development uh, before we get to 1.0. I don't think it's quite as easy as it should be to mass map a bunch of models. And so for the 1.0 beta 3, I'm looking at ways of simplifying that, just reducing the programmer burden a little bit and documenting it better. Yeah, and I'm sure that as more people use it, it becomes easier to know exactly where you can improve that. That's exactly right. And I really encourage uh, people, I would just love feedback from anyone who just kicks the tires and hits a roadblock. Sure, kick it to the curb, but when you hit that roadblock, uh, please please let me know what it was that tangled you up because there's really no way to know what a framework needs until more than uh, one team has used it. And right now, this is a, mostly a single team framework. So do you usually see this as kind of something that backs a data model? You know, so it's kind of the network access layer for it. Or is it the other way around where your view controller or view are going to make a call to Siesta to get back the data or data type or data source that they're expecting? Either. And I really do try to support both models. Siesta tries not to concern itself with who initiates requests or who observes the results of them. So in the simplest sort of approach, maybe you don't have a model layer or you have a very lightweight model layer and you have sort of fat view controllers. Fat view controllers are the observers. They observe things from Siesta and they just pull data straight out of the Siesta resource when they receive updates. At the other end of the continuum, maybe you have a very sophisticated model layer. Maybe, in fact, your model layer becomes the Siesta observer and it says, okay, when changes come in, I integrate the new JSON or the new response with some grand view of the world I have, and then, uh, you know, what the heck, I propagate changes out through reactive cocoa, and there's, you know, 10 layers of complexity there, and it goes through my grand MVVM scheme as well. Siesta shouldn't get in the way of either of those, and if it does, then it has a design problem. It's designed to not have opinions about that particular question. So you use the term observer, so is this sort of pulling endpoints or does it only check or sync when you tell it to or it only checks when you tell it to the observers in siesta you observe a resource and if anything causes the state of that resource to change then it's a sort of push-based thing okay observers get notified there's the question of when do observers get called they get called if the state of a resource changes it's just a sort of higher level thing that's very similar to KVO and its basic mechanics. Um, There's also the question of when does Siesta actually try to refresh a resource from the server? And that's something that's very much up to each individual app. There's, I'd say there's two common approaches I find myself using. So Siesta, it provides a load method, which just forces a request right now, redundant Mm -hmm. or not. And it also provides a load if needed method. So you can configure both globally and per resource a staleness parameter that says, look, you know, users, if it's up to date within 30 seconds, I don't care. Just return the latest data. And load if needed will respect that. It says, okay, if I don't have data or if the data is old, then trigger a request 
if I have data that's not considered stale, then just return it immediately. And I should say, by mm -hmm. the way, there's supposed to be HTTP headers that control how long response data is valid for. I have rarely encountered an API that sets those headers reasonably or in a way that has anything to do with what the app needs. Yeah. How are you checking that a resource has changed? Are you downloading it again and just verifying it? Is there, do you have to add some well, functionality? Lodif Needed's first check is local, and it's fast. I mean, it's nanoseconds fast. Right, because so it goes, oh, I know this from 25 seconds ago. That's new enough. I got the answer. Here you go. Yeah, it's, and that's it's wicked as fast. expensive. It's as expensive as the OS's current time call. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that, for example, if you wanted to have a polling-based application that updates a resource every 60 seconds, well, configure the timeout for that resource, the staleness parameter to be 60 seconds, and then, heck, set up an NS timer and call load if needed 10 times a second. It won't slow your app down. It's a really cheap call. But when you hit that 60-second threshold, then boom. And, and I, I mean, 10 times a second is excessive, but... The point is that load if needed is an extremely cheap call most of the time until you hit the staleness threshold. At that point, Siesta has this wonderful advantage of having a parsed version of a resource right there, and it respects e-tags. So if it already has a local copy and that local copy has an e-tag, then Siesta can respect a 304 and not just say, hey, no change, but it'll actually just give you the same parsed object back yet again, which means that if you're lucky enough to be working with an API that actually understands 304s, uh, which is certainly not always the case, then yes, it touches the network, but you get extremely fast responses to a check that results in no change to data. And then the third case, of course, is that the server says, Yep, there's new data. At that point, whenever the response comes in, Siesta parses it on a background thread. It, there's a GCD background queue that does all of the deserialization. And when the new data comes in, it updates the resource and notifies all of the observers on the main thread that, hey, this resource has new data. Okay, so Siesta does some logic with kind of the server, you know, whether it's e-tag or checking the responses to make sure that we're not literally loading down that resource a number of times. Right. Okay. It looks inside the HTTP exactly as much as is appropriate to the problem it's solving. So there are just a few pieces of information that actually have to do with when we need to update state and when we can avoid that, and the rest of it Siesta passes through. I should also mention, if you're used to working or got frustrated with some higher-level framework, Siesta exposes all of the request and response headers, and it's up to you to do whatever your API needs. If you have some authentication scheme or there's some uh, special header that actually affects what the model looks like, it's available to you. Siesta tries very hard not to hide those things. That's the responsibility of some other layer of your application. Yeah, it's a good approach. I like frameworks that keep things simple and let people see what's actually happening. The more you're trying to hide something, you know, the more you run into an edge case where your abstraction just doesn't work, you know, which I ran into with RESTkit. You know, I knew what I wanted to do, but I couldn't figure out how to wire it up correctly, and the documentation wasn't that great. Yeah. But as long as I know what's happening, because I understand what's happening under the hood, I just need a little help sometimes. I don't want to write all that code. Yeah. But I like, I like the approach, and I appreciate that. Well, it certainly aims to be... Well, actually, I don't know if any of you know Radex, who, who blogs nicely on Swift, suggested to me that I really should call it a, a library and not a framework. 
which is a fuzzy distinction to me, but I like what he meant by that, which is that this isn't a grand answer to everything. It peels off one layer. It's focused on a specific problem. And it does a lot of footwork related to that problem. But finally, it's just about dealing with when do we request things, what do we do with the responses, and how do we propagate them back to the people who are interested in them. That's it. That's the scope of Siesta. It's it's not trying to do too many things at once. That problem of bad abstractions, I think, is one that we deal with a lot. I know recently you had Sam Giddens on the show talking about the limits of modularity, which I thought was a, a nice interview. Listening to that interview, I, uh, the thing that kept going through my head was just, yeah, sometimes modularizing really does amount to just drawing a line through your code, and it's a bad line. You try to break a piece of code into two pieces. Well, those two pieces kind of have to make sense, each one of them on their own. Uh, a good abstraction doesn't just mean reduce dependency. Uh, it doesn't just mean I put the code in separate files or separate libraries. It means that I've taken something that's complex and reduced it to something that's conceptually simpler. I've come up with some metaphor for thinking about the problem that makes my code easier to write than it was without that metaphor. So for example, you know, if I say list to you, you know what a list is or array. You know what that is. I don't have to explain it. You don't have to know exactly how it's implemented. You can hide details of, uh, you know, is it consecutive memory locations or a linked list or blah, blah, blah. A list or an array, there's things. They have an order. There's a bunch of them. I can add and remove and get a count. And there's a concept that I can get my head around that allows me to not think about a bunch of implementation details. And I'd like Siesta to get to that point where you can really think about just there's a resource it has a state. I can ask for that state to be updated and I can observe changes to it without having to think quite so hard about exactly when requests are triggered and how they get queued and how responses are handled and blah, 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 blah. That makes sense. I didn't ask before. How do you store these resources? Are they? Is it a memory? Are you caching them to the disk at all? You can. There's a little empty interface in the project for caching things to disk because I had needed that on one project. Let me speak to the in-memory thing first. By default, Siesta caches fully parsed responses in memory. And the advantage of that, this is one of the big advantages over just using NSURL caches. For example, in that uh, remote image view, if you're, say, flipping through a table view very fast and you have three or four different icons that are remotely loaded, you can just observe those three or four image resources and not worry about calling load if needed a lot, calling add observer and remove observer a lot, uh, using Siesta to provide the image to you. It's cached the parsed image already. Getting a cached resource is designed to be very, very fast. So in memory, it stores cached things, and then it has a little intelligence so that uh, by default it just holds everything, but if there's a low memory event all of the cached references become weak references. If your code is still using one of those images, it doesn't disappear from the cache, but everything that's currently unused just vanishes and then will be re-requested again as needed. And then there's also the option, if you want to cache things to disk, the use case for that is making your app start up as if it were already launched uh, very quickly. But that's not a core use case for the 1.0 release, and I've just left the interface there. In a future release, I might provide some reasonable default implementation of it, but uh, not for now. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to trying this out. I think it 
solves a problem that most of our apps have. Have you run into any cases where, you know, you need to get too specific for dealing with a library like this? How do you mean too specific? Like the problems that you're solving with this particular app, you're fighting the library versus it's helping you, which can be the problem with frameworks. It's like, I want to do this thing. It wasn't designed to do. Have you, have you gotten into it? And yes, that, is, like that is the problem with frameworks. I haven't, though I have the advantage of being the author and simply knowing when it's inappropriate. I will say this, since generalizing this code, I haven't run into a RESTful API where it wasn't helpful. That said, it's not appropriate for all kinds of networking. If you're doing some kind of socket-based thing, yeah, if it's not HTTP, clearly not the appropriate thing. If you're doing large background downloads to files or something like that, you know, maybe offline updates, that's, that's not Siesta's domain. Of course, the nice thing about it is that you can always just drop down a layer. It doesn't stop you from using other networking frameworks. But no, I haven't run into a case yet where clearly it was the wrong thing for interacting with an API. And I'm, I'm interested to see that case when it comes up. That'll tell me a lot about what the framework needs or what it should uh, excuse itself from being. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a reasonable approach for most of the apps that get built. You know, it doesn't yeah. handle every, every little custom thing, but it shouldn't. No. And it does aim to uh, cover the 80% case well and not get in the way of the other 20. Staying out of the way is a high priority. I should say the other high priority I have for this is uh, something I learned from venturing into the Ruby world and then coming back to the more C-like world of iOS is that readability of code really matters. Conciseness matters. And the Siesta API has more conveniences than it strictly needs. But in places where I felt client code was a little too verbose or a little hard to read, I added things to the API just to improve readability. That's been a priority for this framework. And on the iOS side, I, I see things in general. I think the culture is moving in that direction a lot with Swift, which I'm really pleased to see. Objective-C is such a verbose language. We almost, we get conditioned to just seeing so many characters on the screen that we uh, sometimes forget to aim for readability, even when it's achievable in Objective-C. But uh, using a language that is a little more concise and perhaps a little more flexible lends itself to a wider array of programming techniques. I see people coming back to the readability question with Swift. And I'm really glad to see that taking hold in the iOS world more than it has. Yeah, it's been a problem for a long time with Objective-C. All the characters on every line is the standard code standard. And I never got that. I can it, read it now a little bit, but... It's a hard language to format well, no matter how you slice it. White space is the enemy to yeah. most Objective-C developers. <laughs> God, white space is a beautiful thing. I uh, really got a handle on my thinking about this issue reading Edward Tufte, who talks about the data-to-ink ratio. That is, how much information is conveyed per thing on the page that my eye has to process. And there was a day, I think it was probably in the early 2000s, just looking at envisioning information, this light bulb went on, and I thought, wait a minute, code is information design. When we write code, we are doing information design for ourselves and for other humans who have to make sense of this dang stuff. If it weren't information design, then we would just write everything in machine code and be done with it because computers don't care. But 
readability matters because it helps us think about things. I, I don't know if you're not familiar with Tufty's books. For example, read his really, I think, quite compelling argument that both space shuttle disasters were in large part due to bad PowerPoint slides. In both cases, people at NASA had the necessary information in order to make the decision, the correct decision, not to launch. That information was poorly presented because it was buried in bullet points in a bad slide, and the decision makers didn't digest that information and made the wrong call. So yeah, communication matters, how we represent information matters, and that applies to code, it applies to formatting, it applies to style choices, and it applies to API choices too. And also, bullet points kill. Yes. <laughs> they aren't called bullet points for nothing. True. Oh, I didn't get that. Yeah. And, you know, bad information design has real-world consequences. I mean, not much code out there is actually as critical as those space shuttle decisions, but uh, bad information design causes bugs. If you can't understand it, then you can't make it correct. I'm sorry, but no matter how smart you are, your code is only as good as your comprehension of it. That's something that I think we've, uh, well, working with Objective-C, we sort of learned to sneer at that idea a bit, uh, but it's an important idea. No, I agree. Anything else we should dive into before we go to picks? I could chat all afternoon, but perhaps we should wrap it up here just for the sake of listeners' ears, right? Yep, unless there's something else important about Siesta that we didn't talk about. I'd encourage people to read the docs and tell me what's important about it that I'm missing. Again, this is, on the one hand, it's production quality code. There are apps on the App Store already that use it, but I'm just not going to stop calling it beta until I have some good feedback from lots of different people. So I would love to hear your thoughts, the results of your experiments, even simple things like pull requests for typos in the docs are very welcome at this point. So, uh... Please kick the tires. Let me know what you think. I'm eager to hear from you. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to the picks. Jane, do you have some picks for us? Man, I don't, I don't have any picks today. Everything is, is just okay, you know. I will say I, I do appreciate the README on picks. I've actually chuckled reading it. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you announced it a month or two ago, and I read it, and I actually chuckled. So it's, inter- it's an entertaining read, and it does give a good comparison with other frameworks like we I asked before. So a lot of good info in there. So that's my pick. How often do you get a readme pick? <laughs> Thanks, Never, <Jim>. right? <laughs> All right. I've got a pick. I'm trying to find it here on my Amazon orders. But I have a really nice anti-fatigue mat that I use. So just to back up just a little bit, here it is. It's Smart Cells Anti-Fatigue Comfort Mat for Homer Office. It's 24 inches or 36 inches. I don't remember which one I got. But anyway, I'm going to pick standing up. Yesterday when I recorded Ruby Rogues, I stood up for the entire episode. I mean, my legs were <laughs> pretty well worn out yesterday after I was done, but I feel like it's important to get get out and move and, and spend some time standing up. And there, there have been a ton of studies that show that that's pretty important. On Monday, I actually went golfing with my father-in-law. He came up and he dragged me out to the golf course, kicking and screaming. I, I really didn't want to, you know, okay. So I, I had a good time. And yeah, it just really kind of drove home to me how much better I felt when I was done you know, as opposed to how run down I had been feeling before then, because I just haven't been making it a priority to get out and move. So I'm going to pick that. I'm going to pick this uh, anti-fatigue mat. And then I've also got a standing desk. And I know I've mentioned it on the show before, but it's just the, it's the Lifehacker IKEA jobber. In fact, if you do a Google search for Lifehacker standing desk, it's like 25 bucks for all the parts. And then I had a couple of wood screws that I used to put the shelf up and it works great, and it's nice to just kind of get up 
and be able to stand while I work. And so I'm actually trying to get to the point where I can stand anytime I'm on a call with anybody because most of the calls I do anymore are over Skype. And so uh, I'm going to move my webcam over there, and I'm going to move my other stuff over there. And that includes the podcast, so I'm actually going to move my boom mic and stuff over there. So, Or my mic boom and my mic over there. So anyway, stand up, get out and move, do all that stuff. And finally, I've been doing... So I'm going to also pick Periscope. I guess I have a lot of picks because James didn't have any. But so Periscope is a kind of video broadcasting type deal. And it's actually owned by Google or not by Google, by Twitter. And what you do is you just get on and, you know, you kind of talk to your phone for a little bit. But I've decided to do it every day as kind of a video journal. And so I've done it for three days now. I'm not going to do it on the weekends, but I've been doing it at 930 in the morning mountain time every day. You can figure out what time it is for you if you want to jump on. But if you get the Periscope app, follow me on Periscope, then you can do that. Or if you're following me on Twitter, you can just click the link and watch it on the web. But on the web, you can't send hearts and you can't send messages. So if you want to reply to what I'm saying, either by you know tapping the screen and then I get a bunch of hearts that show up, or you can uh, actually reply, then that works. And then my other pick related to that is there's a system out there called catch.me, and that's catch with a K. And that actually then downloads the Periscope calls so that people can play them back later because Periscope, the way that it works is after you do the Periscope video, the video is available for 24 hours and then it disappears. But Catch actually catches them and then I can post them on a blog or a podcast, etc. I can also download the videos and so that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm going to put those onto a podcast feed and then if you are absolutely insane and want to hear me every day for 5 to 20 minutes, the longest call I did was for about 20 minutes, then, you know, then you can do that. But I'm just kind of going to do an audio journal or video journal and just kind of talk through some of the stuff I'm thinking about. So obviously not everything is going to come to fruition, but a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is just stuff that I'm thinking about. And I've had some good feedback on it so far. So we'll see how that goes. I don't actually have the videos posted anywhere yet, but I will let people know where to get that stuff. And finally, the last deal is, is that I am also considering putting out a weekly newsletter where I just, you know, give some thoughts, this general advice for programmers. So it can be anything from how to learn stuff to stuff you should be learning to career advice to, you know, ways to be more productive, ways to find a better work-life balance, all kinds of stuff like that. Probably some things about freelancing. So if you're interested in any of that, then keep an eye out on devchat.tv. I'll probably have the opt-in form up later this week. So... Those are all my picks. Some of those are stuff that I'm doing, and some of those are the tools that I'm using to do them. But I feel like the context is important when I'm talking about some of this stuff. So hopefully that helps you out. Paul, what are your picks? It wasn't one of my picks, but piggybacking on what you said, I uh, also will just put in a good word for standing desks. And in particular, I've just found it wonderful to have a setup where I can switch between sitting and standing Mm -hmm. regularly throughout the day. I don't find either position particularly comfortable for extended periods, but just being able to change it up periodically has uh, done me a lot of good. And I'll also put in a good word for the Alexander technique. It's the only sort of posture-related program of any kind that has ever made any sense to me and i actually found it surprisingly useful it's very popular with musicians but i would recommend it to programmers my picks what is it first the alexander uh, technique alexander technique yeah it's a sort of just a general technique that's taught by a lot of individual instructors in various places google it there's probably somebody who does it near you and it's 
very little uh, of the sort of stand this way, do that, do that sort of advice that I've got about posture. It's much more just practicing being relaxed and learning to pay attention to what that feels like and then giving you uh, almost sort of neuroscience hacks for changing habits that cause you to be uncomfortable and tense. It was developed in the 19th century, but it's weird. It feels like it was developed by people who uh, had fMRIs of the brain. A lot of it is about just figuring out how to change your attention so that you can notice that you're doing something terrible to your back. And it's weirdly effective. So a good word for that. The pics. First, I just want to point out a blog post called The Ghost of Swift Bugs Future by Alexandra Salazar. It's a very particular point, but one that I think is a bit surprising and certainly a dangerous pitfall about the way that protocol extensions work in Swift 2, that the methods, the, the functions in a protocol extension can be either dynamically or statically dispatched, and they don't look any different. It depends on whether it's specified in the protocol that the method extends. So if you just heard that and thought, oh my God, what? Then read this post. <laughs> and if you just heard that and said, what? What does that even mean? Then definitely read this post. It's certainly, as he says, the ghost of Bug's future. And I disagree with him. I think it's a design flaw in Swift. I think it's something that they're going to have to revisit in a future re release because it's so potentially just catastrophically confusing. Second pick, I love the podcast 99% Invisible. I'll just, if you haven't heard it before, I would point out to software engineers the episode on Galloping Gertie, which is the story of the Seattle-Tacoma Narrows Bridge that collapsed due to bad engineering. And the way they covered this bridge collapse is, I think, wonderful for programmers because so much of it is about how we talk ourselves into bad decisions and how we move forward with bad decisions, even long past the point when we should know that our decision was terrible. It just, what does it feel like to be wrong? And how does wrongness persist? And how does our human fallibility translate into engineering failures? Uh, it, it's a just a lovely little 10-minute piece, and it begins with one of my favorite quotes of all time, which I will leave for you to discover. If you like it, then you could do worse than to just listen to the entire run of the show. There's, oh, what, uh, 160 or 70 episodes, I'd say, and about 99% of them are outstanding. And then the third pick is just a, a favorite book of mine called Proofs and Refutations for the truly, truly geeky out there. It's a book about mathematical philosophy, but I also think it has a lot of relevance for programmers. It's Surprisingly, because it's I mean, math philosophy, how dry could it be? It is not only short, but funny. It's a little imaginary play in a classroom in which the professor presents a proof and then the class discovers counterexamples to the thing that they thought they just proved. And so the whole book is sort of an examination of what mathematical truth is and how we really know things and how we know what words mean, how we map concepts to abstractions. And at first, it seems like it's just about mathematics. But by the end, I think it, it has a lot to say about software, about how we constantly try to come up with better concepts and try to refine the concepts that we have by building software using them. And by building software, we discover what's wrong with the concepts that we've developed so far. And so there's this dialogue between uh, notion and implementation that's just an endless cycle of sharpening and improvement. And even though the book was written in the 60s, it, 
it still speaks, I think, to how good software gets written today. And I should say also, it does not require any kind of deep math. You, you need to understand junior high school geometry. Uh, that's about the only requirement. So for the adventurous, I'd, I'd recommend that one as well. Those are my picks. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Well, if people want to find out more about Siesta or about Paul, what do they do? If you want to find more about Siesta, we have a uh, fancy website, Bust Out Solutions has uh, some really stellar designers who, uh, honestly, that's one of my favorite things about working with this consulting group is just they uh, gave really nice designs to implement. And anybody who's implemented a bad design knows how nice it is to implement a good one. So one of our designers just threw a little bit of light styling on uh, the Siesta page, and there's user guide and pretty colors that you can read through. If you want to find out more about me, uh, my website is innig.net. Most of the stuff on there is about software. Excuse me, it's about music and not software. But if you enjoy music, check it out. I'm also a concert pianist of modest ability. And you can follow me on Twitter at In the Hands. You can follow Bust Out Solutions at Team Bust Out. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks again for coming, Paul. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll catch everybody next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum. 